This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with David Walker. He's a professor in Australian studies at Deakin University and he joined me on the phone to talk about his essay in the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. David spoke about his essay entitled Great Australian Divide. The Western Outpost Faces the Asian Century. I'm really delighted to have with me a Professor of Australian Studies and he is based at Deakin University. He was also affiliated with the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne and his name is Professor David Walker and he's written an essay for the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine which has just come out and uh, the, on the cover the title is Great Australian Divide, the Western Outpost Faces the Asian Century and and uh, in the, on the inside of the, the journal, um, the shorter title is Significant Other. So um, I'm welcoming David now, and thank you so much, David, for joining us. Not at all, Amy. Uh, it's so fascinating to see the, another side of history that I hadn't actually encountered, and um, that's saying something because I actually studied Australian history and this period quite a lot, but it, it hadn't really come up. The other side of the White Australia debate or discussion, we're often told about the the kind of White Australia policy, this idea of a pure race uh, that Australia seemed to be quite preoccupied with and made its official policy for a number of years. But in this essay, you really take us on a journey around where um, this idea of Asia came from, Australia's perception of Asia and the various countries that make up that massive region, Um, and also that Australians weren't all necessarily um, critical or hostile to the idea of uh, Asian immigration. So um, in terms of this issue where, um, in terms of the title, Uh, that is in this, or sorry, the subtitle in the title of your essay, um, Western Outpost. Can you tell us about what that refers to? Yes, I mean, the the essay begins really uh, in the 1820s. It starts way back, uh, which for a foreign affairs journal is a very worrying place to start (laughs) because... They don't like to go back that far, but but in the eighteen late eighteen twenties, there was an argument um, that Australia would be um, greatly benefited if it had um, Chinese immigrants. <laughs> Apologies for the cough, Chinese immigrants, because the the notion was that it was a continent um, that really demanded uh, development. Uh, the Chinese, according to the the writer Edward Gibbon Wakefield, who who was the person talking about systematic colonisation of Australia, uh, Wakefield argued that the Chinese had uh, tremendous uh, capacities as agriculturalists. Uh, they'd had a proven record both in China and through Southeast Asia, and that their skills would be very uh, useful in Australia as well. So that Australia would be t- turned in his language from a wilderness uh, which is hardly a very correct uh, characterization of Australia but would be turned uh, from a wilderness into a productive garden so the idea appears fairly early on that, that a Chinese or an Asian influence or, or um, 
dimension to Australian development would be uh, very beneficial, would be very uh, helpful. And part of that argument, or keyed into that argument, is the notion that the Australian continent itself is either part of Asia or um, belonging in some ways within an Asian setting or region. So that uh, idea comes in very, very early, and that if the if you like, the essence of the continent is, it, is as much Asian as it is uh, European or Aboriginal, then maybe it needs an Asian import or an Asian dimension to make it uh, to work properly. So the outpost idea is, OK, the British have settled this place and they're trying to turn it in to, uh, in some sense, a replica of, of Britain stroke Europe. But underneath that is this idea that there's a, a kind of an Asian um, impulse or an Asian undertow that will continually draw European Australia towards Asia. And that if Australia is to succeed, that it needs to notice or pay attention to uh, to that uh, dynamic. Well, that's so interesting. And you talk about you know that early example of Edward Gibbon Wakefield in the 1820s, and then you follow that through with further primary evidence from others um, who followed Wakefield. Uh, for example, you write about um, in 1888 uh, Minister Reverend James Jefferies, who had a a multiracial vision of Australia's future and you write, quote, he imagined how Chinese, Japanese and Indian settlers could contribute to a glorious new Australia. Each would bring distinctive attributes. And uh, and then you also follow with some further um, examples. What was really striking to me was your example about the Sydney Morning Herald arguing that an infusion of Chinese blood would prevent white settlers from degenerating into a soft and spongy race in Australia's hot climate. That, when reading those um, evidence pieces together, was very striking and not the narrative that um, many people would understand to be part of 19th century Australia. Yes, absolutely. I think that's uh, one of the points I was trying to make, so I'm so pleased that you picked it up. Yes. But, um, yeah, it's a kind of lost uh, narrative in a way because it doesn't fit the uh, the mainstream story terribly well. So often uh, when you've got a big story running and um, uh, a lot of things come along that don't fit it very well, it's easier to leave them on the cutting room floor mm. to try and integrate them. But the yeah, the Sydney um, Morning Herald argument is a very interesting one because it goes to the the question of, of climate, which refers back to my earlier point, that if you try to assess the nature of the Australian continent, it's certainly warmer than the United Kingdom. And the top third of Australia, maybe the top half of Australia, lies either within or near the tropics. So a fair part of Australia is is tropical and in the thinking of the 19th century in climate related uh, thinking which is also very close to racial thinking um, that is particular racial uh, characteristics are determined by climate 
then Australia is very ambiguously situated racially. You know, that the northern part of Australia is seen to be as least as much Asian as it might be thought uh, European. And even coming down into what the, the southern parts of Australia that we might now think of as more Mediterranean in climate, there's still the view that these places are hotter than the United Kingdom, which had framed the, you know, the Anglo-Celtic race. So again, the argument is that ra the climate will change the racial characteristics of Australians and that in order to kind of fortify them or protect them, going back to the Sydney Morning Herald argument about the soft and spongy race, what you might need is an infusion of, uh, of Chinese blood to um, help withstand the climatic pressures that, uh, that Australia will necessarily bring to the colonising uh, enterprise. So you need, you need to strengthen and fortify. Now, these are all racial arguments that we wouldn't take terribly seriously now. Uh, and going back to Jeffress, he had fixed attributes for each of the categories that you mentioned there. So the Chinese are hardworking, uh, the Indians are spiritual, and the Japanese have got, um, you know, clever craft and uh, artistic uh, sensibilities. So you, none of them could become the other. You know, you couldn't be Japanese and spiritual or Chinese and artistic or Indian and hardworking because <laughs> you were, you were labelled, you had, you had your racial label. So... Jeffress is coming from a racialized uh, set of arguments around, um, uh, you, you know, that are prominent in the late 19th century. But nonetheless, it's a very interesting um, representation of what a multiracial Australia might look like. And it's not a horror story, as many of the late 19th century depictions of racial mixing were. So he's running against the horror story idea. He's saying this might be pretty terrific. You know, we might get something really unique and interesting, uh, creative and worthwhile from these, uh, the, the, this mixing and mingling of the races and their uh, various attributes. So that idea, again, um, is not well presented through the histories. Um, because it, it seems such, uh, in, in some ways, it seems such a minority view that you need hardly take any notice of it. But one of the other arguments I would run, although I didn't present this for the Australian Foreign Affairs uh, article, is that an argument that might seem pretty marginal in one period can become much more dominant in a later period. So in some ways you need the marginal voices, you need to attend to the marginal voices because you might hear something there that later on uh, really becomes a much more dominant uh, narrative. And I think that's part of what's happening here. You're getting people experimenting with the idea of a more fluid understanding of race, uh, a more fluid understanding of how uh, racial identities might be formed and reformed in Australia and how there might be benefits uh, to be derived from that. So they're playing around with the idea of, of something beneficial or hopeful or optimistic coming from this, which is certainly a minority view in the 19th century, 
but if you leap forward a century into um, you know multicultural Australia and the celebration of diversity and all the rest of it, then that's become in some ways the dominant narrative of our uh, of contemporary Australia. You know, we we are all embracing diversity and we love diversity and all the rest of it. So. Uh, that argument has gradually um, risen to the surface to become a much more powerful one in our uh, society today. Yes, and if we follow through the thread or the idea that continues to get developed uh, into the 20th century, particularly in the 1930s, we saw the rise of eugenics and a fascination with blood and um, race and mixing and all of those kind of elements um, that, you know, is often referred to in a a really um, negative light. We see a whole range of constructions of the ideal Australian body or the ideal Australian uh, male. But there's also another current which continues on this idea that you've identified in the 19th century, which was an ideal of a new Eurasian stock, which you um, reference a range of people talking about and imagining, and that was so in um, 1949 by demographer W.D. Borrie, and you follow on and and talk about the Eurasian ideal. Um, You say the Eurasian ideal was always seen as European Asian, never as black-white, which was unacceptable to race theorists. So where did that Eurasian idea go? How long did it kind of hang around as as an ideal? Well, I mean, I think in some ways the Eurasian argument has um, made a bit of a resurgence recently. So there's now more discussion about Australia being a a Eurasian nation. And one of the other uh, observations I make there is that in 1983, I think it was, Paul Keating said that Australia would become the first Eurasian nation. And the Eurasian, the Eurasian idea has, um, you know, made a bit of a, a bit of a comeback. But part of my argument there is that it was always embedded in a pretty racialized kind of language, and you've identified part of that because it was always seen. And getting back to that need to to have an infusion of Asian blood, uh, the the old Sydney Morning Herald argument. That we need we need Asia because Asia might or, or an Asian infusion because Asia might prepare us for the continent that we've inhabited, but we absolutely don't want Aboriginal um, bloodlines to to be strengthened and continued because they're relegated to a different category racially. So they're they're seen as inferior in a way that, um, you know, Chinese bloodlines are not. I mean, there are people who will obviously say and do obviously say very, very negative things about the Chinese. But there's another kind of division operating there that um, in the fancy language of the late 19th century, some races were regarded as evanescent or passing races. You know, they disappear. So, And their bloodlines were considered to be... Um, weak. So Aboriginal Australians were thought of as evanescent, an evanescent race who would pass. Their bloodlines would uh, would diminish and finally, uh, you know, fade away. But the uh, 
Chinese were never regarded in that light at all. I mean, the Chinese were regarded as being a very powerful uh, bloodline, which is part of the reason why the, the, uh, you have the fanaticism around white Australia, you know, that one drop of Chinese blood uh, is going to prove uh, so enormously powerful that you will never get rid of it. So there's, there's a kind of argument there that um, the Chinese... Are particularly worrying because of the strength of their their bloodlines and indeed the depth the depth of their civilization. You know, you won't you won't breed them out. Let them in. You won't breed them out. So the the Eurasian idea has its origins in that um, notion of Australia as an ambiguously placed continent somewhere between Europe and Asia. So we're going to need an infusion. Of, of Asian blood to survive, but it's it's always couched in, as I say, in a, in a white stroke Asian or European Asian framing, never as a as a, a European Aboriginal or European uh, African American framing. So the the term uh, maybe I'm being too much the historian here, but it seems to me that the Eurasian ideal is fatally compromised by its uh, by its racial history you know that it's such a difficult term to um to renovate for contemporary purposes if you like and no australian future whatever that future might be but no australian future can seriously contemplate a worthwhile uh, place for itself without aboriginal australia being you know factored into those calculations of who we are, what we are and what, what we want to become. Yes, you highlight there such a really interesting tension that still exists um, around identity and uh, facing Asia and seeing it as part of our future, which you really highlight at the beginning of your essay, um, that Asia has pretty much always been couched as a future-looking prospect um, and that has also I guess hindered our progression perhaps in the in the way that we interact with various countries in Asia and how we also perceive our own uh, self as, as Australia in terms of that that future-looking um, focus why did that come about well yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> how, long, how long have you got? Um, it's. I think it's partly the the nature of the Australian settlement project itself. You know, we began with convicts. Um, the past wasn't serving us terribly well. You know, it's not a past you necessarily wanted to look back to. First of all, it was seen to be a pretty shallow one, but there was also seen to be a pretty ugly one. You know, all these criminals and ne'er-do-wells um, were the, uh, the stock from which we came. And then if you didn't take seriously Aboriginal culture and in, uh, in the 19th century you didn't know how deep that culture was anyhow, you know, because you were still working on biblical time frames which, which didn't allow much uh, depth for Aboriginal history at all. So uh, the future was always one of the tropes or framings of where Australia... Australia was always had, had a world ahead of it but never a world behind it. And 
the future was seen to be one of our great uh, strengths and attributes, one of our great glories. You know, we we would create something um, out of out of the freedoms that we enjoyed, and indeed, the lack of a past was often represented as being a good thing because that wasn't going to hold us back. We weren't going to be tied back to, you know, traditions and conventions and old patterns of thinking and so on. We were we were new people, but the Asian future idea goes goes deep into the 19th century because the the idea of rising Asia, which we commonly associate with the 1980s, 1990s and after, was really an idea beginning to emerge in the late 19th century. So the idea that Asia was on the rise um, dates from the 1880s and the 1890s. So you have the Meiji Restoration in Japan in the late 1860s. So Japan is miraculously transformed and across a generation becomes one of these uh, sort of miracle nations across the Pacific. You know, strong navy, strong army, cohesive, um, artistic um, and all the rest of it. So there's that there's that sense that you've got rising Japan, you've got very, you've got populous China, and that these and Australia is located in the Pacific. So the future is is looking increasingly oriented to the Pacific. So shifting from the Atlantic to the Pacific, Australia sits in the Pacific. The future is increasingly couched as an Asian future, and that Australia is the continent most um, directly located to face that future. So in a way, the other dimension of this argument is that of all the European societies on Earth, Australia is the one that will first encounter the impact of rising Asia. Australia is the first continent that will have to think about and respond to uh, the new... Uh, cultural, political, and economic power of Asia, and that's a that's an, again an argument that comes up in the 1890s. There's you know Charles Pearson, um, uh, a kind of late 19th century educator, intellectual historian in Melbourne, um, writes a book called National Life and Character: A Forecast, and Pearson argues exactly that case. I mean, his contention is that, that Australians are the first Europeans in the world who will see uh, and have to come to terms with the rise of Asia, who will understand the profound implications of that geopolitical change. And that's a very, very interesting argument, I think. And so that, that pops up pretty early on you know that's that's an 1890s argument so around the the, the world of people who are thinking uh, geopolitically and wondering about Australia's place in the world um, Asia begins to figure more and more prominently in their thinking now a lot of that thinking is is predicated on danger and alarm and there's a certain amount of invasion writing that takes place uh, from the 1880s uh, onwards, which argues that Australia is vulnerable to an Asian takeover, which is one of the other themes running through that essay. You know, when people think about, are we Asian yet? 
historically that argument would be have we been overtaken by have we been invaded by uh, have we been subsumed uh, into or, or incorporated into Asia yet so a lot of the invasion writing argued that uh, Australia was so vulnerable to an Asian takeover that it would become Asian unless we managed to build up our defences and our security and so on and so forth but the you know there's still sitting beneath that is this other argument about um, like like for example there's a guy I think I quote in that essay uh, who says before the First World War that Japan will become Australia's major trading partner so in the futurist uh, language about Asia there's the invasion story but there's also you know the the, the story about big markets and cultural and social and other opportunities that that uh, await Australia in Asia. Yes, and the the better known discussions around Australia's earlier ties with Japan, uh, mainly around the economy, as you say, but also defence and the fact that the British Empire were stepping away to some extent from um, committing to provide assistance to Australia whenever they require. And obviously, Australians were concerned that they that Britain would send Japan to come and defend Australia in various circumstances. We then see further anxiety in that um, anxiety around the invasion narrative that you've just been describing um, with the bombing of Darwin. And then even up until, you know, last year, we've seen more discussion around the word invasion and also the concept of, of an infiltration or invasion of our telecommunication systems and defence um, systems. And, and that's something which, you know, continues on. And I was interested in your reference to Clive Hamilton's book silent invasion which has come out recently around that and and that you write that uh, his claim exaggerates the reality it's certainly um dangerous to overemphasize something like um chinese government interference when you know there's only so so many ways you could verify it if you're not part of asio or asis yes yes i think i think the the concern I had there with the um, with that uh, with that book was partly the title, uh, which plays to a whole uh, raft of invasion-related uh, speculation in and beyond Australia. But you go back to 1888, and um, there's William Lane, White or Yellow, a story of the Asian invasion of Australia in AD 1908. So the idea of Asian invasion as being Australia's future, mm. that they'll just uh, sweep in and take all, you know, carry all before them, has a long history in our, in our population. And it's often uh, the most uh, common framing of what an Asian future will look like. You know, it's going to be invasive. They're going to take us over. So to propose a uh, sober work of analysis about the possible impacts of Chinese technologies and uh, Chinese government uh, potential and actual interference in Australian affairs, 
by inserting the word invasion into that title strikes me as being um, you know fairly opportunistic both opportunistic and mischievous uh, really it's it's an attempt to grab it attention which I think has been um, on the whole successful <laughs> but, yes. um, you know I, I don't I don't see it as a very responsible way of arguing what's a pretty serious uh, set of propositions around um, you know who we are where we are and who's trying to um, um, you know shape our future Yes, and uh, there's also a distinction between China, the Chinese government, and also Chinese immigrants who have um, who were either born in China and have immigrated to Australia, or those who have descended from um, immigrants and who were actually born here and have Chinese heritage, for example. Um, so yeah, it can be a bit dangerous. Um, and you do reference the data that George Megalogenis uh, has analysed around the proportion of uh, people who are of an Asian background, um, particularly we've seen such a rise in uh, Asian backgrounds with international students. So I wanted to head to, um, before we finish this interview, the the way that Keating, Paul Keating, our former Prime Minister, saw um, our engagement with Asia or wanted to see it and whether we've even come close to that and whether it is even a, an a good aspiration to have from our perspective or from those in Asia. Um, you, you write that he foresaw a time when more Australians spoke Asian languages and understood Asian cultures where business people familiar with the Asia-Pacific valued Australians of Asian heritage. Our national culture would influence but also be shaped by our Asian neighbours. Um, how, how far have we got in terms of reaching that plan or ideal? Yeah, that's not a bad question. (laughs) um, I think in terms of Asia literacy, in some ways that's always struggled. You know, the idea of Asia literacy in the education system, uh, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary, um, has always been from uh, the coining of the term in 1988, has always been a very... um, compelling aspiration in a way but it's been enormously difficult to get um, anywhere near that in terms of uh, Asian language uh, competency uh, within the education system so the number of students who take an Asian language uh, is not particularly high and um, if anything is, is sort of falling away but in any event it's not terribly convincing and uh, what are we since um, so over 30 years since since 1988 and the coining of the term you'd have to say that the uh, the progress towards that has been uh, glacial and uh, but at other levels you know there's a lot of uh, between Australia and Asia at a people to people level so I think a lot of those people to people connections um, are stronger um, I'd, I also spent three years at Peking University recently and I have to put in the there are now over 30 Australian studies centres in China which um, examine one or other aspect of Australian society you know politi- politics, culture language, uh, international relations, economy and so on so at, at the educational level there are inter- interactions and connections 
and most universities now um, are really uh, very, very um, indebted to their um, Asian-based or Asian-origin academics, uh, many from mainland China, working in the sciences in particular. And, um, and, and so a lot of the research that's coming out of Australian universities is coming from, from uh, academics of an Asian and nothing particularly Chinese background. So there's a lot happening uh, away from the uh, headlines around Asia literacy, uh, I think. I think of the level of government. Uh, it's been pretty disappointing. It's been inconsistent. You know, you get um, the Gillard White Paper, which is about engagement, and then within three weeks of uh, the Abbott government coming in the white paper is archived so you know you throw that away and then each new government and this is an argument that george megalogenes also makes in that issue of the of the journal that we've had we've had a problem with rookie prime ministers you know they don't have a strong understanding of foreign policy um they're in power for three weeks uh, they're thrown out by someone else um and so on and so we've got a constant churn of people with different agendas and different arguments and often different language you know so the, the language keeps changing around who we're engaging with and what asia is and all the rest of it so for uh for your listeners um much of this is extremely confusing you know what what are we what is asia what are we engaging with uh what are we supposed to get out of it what are they supposed to get out of it uh, all the rest of it um, it's uh, something that we need to uh, have a more measured, thoughtful, considered and consistent discussion about, I think. Mm, yes, it's often you know, abstract in terms of our discussion and commercialised. And I think um, to, to cap off our discussion, I really liked your comment uh, about needing to get to know them as people not just as customers which I think is often the dominant way that at least the political class uh, refer to people from um, the Asia Pacific. Yes yes thank, thank you for identifying that very profound and worthwhile observation uh, Amy. Yes. I don't know what this big noise is happening here. Oh that's, uh, that's a phone which we'll ignore <laughs> but um Yes, I mean, the, the customer idea is also an interesting attempt to sort of um, take the racial dimension out of it. So if the Chinese are, are represented as Chinese, that can be a bit worrying. If you turn them into customers, that's obviously a good thing because you don't have to worry about them quite so much then because they're just buying your stuff. But the problem with the customer formulation is that um, you need to know the cultural dynamic of of um, Chinese buying practices. You know, why are Chinese wanting this product rather than that product? Or what makes them interested in, you know, brand names or whatever it is? Um, and in order to understand that, you need to understand contemporary Chinese society and culture. You need to know what's, you know, what's driving it, what's making it tick, what's making it work. And, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a cultural, social understanding of the Chinese, of Chinese society and the Chinese people. Um, and customers is not going to do it for you. I mean, it might, mm. it might um, you know, calm nerves here, but it absolutely doesn't help you um, 
you know, work out what your future in this region is going to be. David, you have done some fascinating work and it's so valuable to us today. And uh, yeah, as a historian, it's um, it just highlights how important history is to our current day perceptions of ourselves and others and, and how we live our lives now. So I really appreciate your, um, your article and also congratulate you on all the work you've done in this field and uh, mention that you have a new book coming out called Stranded Nation, White Australia in an Asian region, um, which is out through University of Western Australia Press. Um, so people can look that look up that as well as read your essay if they're interested. And uh, thank you so much again. Yes, thank you, Amy, and thank you for the, the questions and the interview. It's my pleasure. Hope to talk to you again. That'll be great. Thanks so much, David. Okay. That is Professor David Walker, who is uh, a professor in Australian Studies at Deakin University, and he's also affiliated with the Asia Centre at the University of Melbourne, and he's written an essay in Australian Foreign Affairs magazine called Great Australian Divide, The Western Outpost Faces the Asian Century, and it is an excellent essay beautifully written and um, just so rigorous uh, historically and highlights such a range of evidence that we do not draw upon often around these issues of race and multiculturalism etc. So uh, do look that up if you're interested. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.